Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 10 as we journey through uh, the Gospel of Mark. We will begin in verse 17 and go through verse 31 today. Again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, 17 through 31. If you're new with us, you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. You can turn to page 1006, and there you'll find Mark chapter 10 and, and look for verse 17 to start. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We actually want you to take that Bible from us today. We believe in the power of God's Word. If you were here last week, you heard exactly how powerful that is and the real results that come with entering into His Word. So we want you to have that. We don't want you to leave here today without, what, without this Word from God that He has for you. So now let us hear from the Word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And P Peter began to say, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've been traveling with Jesus for a while and his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, and, and there's various things we come across. We've come across Jesus teaching through parables, and we've come across Jesus telling a story of something that's happened before, but what we have here is a real encounter. 
we have something that really happened that this young man came and knelt before Jesus. And, and it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. It's recorded in Luke's gospel. And we have it again here in Mark's gospel. All three of them record this encounter between this young man and with Jesus. Now, before we get started, uh, if you don't have this background knowledge within you about Jesus and his teachings, I want to I share it with you so you can put a pin in it and keep it kind of off to the side knowing that Jesus has taught this before. So in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. It's an instance in which there is a great crowd on this mount, and Jesus stops and he teaches. And, and, it, and it's one of the most, and it's the most extended one sitting teaching that we have recorded of Jesus. And he does a bunch of teaching in there. And that's where you get uh, the Beatitudes, if you've heard of the Beatitudes. That's kind of what kicks it off there in chapter five. And he goes along and he does all of this teaching along the way. And then in chapter seven, verse 14, he says that it is a narrow gate and few find it. I want you to put a pin in that, knowing that Jesus said this. He's teaching about heaven, about the kingdom of God. He says, it is a narrow gate, and few find it. Now, here in the scripture we have before us today, we have this young man and his encounter with Jesus. And in this encounter, this young man failed the greatest test of his life in a spectacular fashion. He failed the test, the greatest test of his life. He was offered fulfillment in the life to come or fulfillment in this life. It was laid out right before him at the feet of our Savior. What would be more valuable to him? His stuff now or God in the treasures of heaven? This is what this young man is weighing right here. Now, now before we go off and, and we want to just dismiss this young man because he walks away sor sorrowful, we must make note that this wasn't just a worldly man. No, he was very religious. He was very, very religious, right? He encounters Jesus, and we hear it with his confession. He has self-identified as keeping all, not some, not most, but all of the commandments since his youth. And he wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking how he can gain possession of eternal life. We can relate to that because we understand in, in this capitalistic society we live in, the, the commodities of possessions, of, of buying and selling, and, and everything has a price, and everything is for sale, and, and we want to know how we can gain more stuff. And, and so we, too, can relate to this young man in understanding that eternal life we sometimes think of as a thing. But more than that, we have commodified grace, and we think of grace as a thing when grace is a person in Jesus Christ. See, we often find ourselves living our lives, well, I sinned this morning, but look, I went to church on Sunday, so I've got this much more grace added into my bank account. 
And then I read my Bible, so I added more grace. And, 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 and we think of grace as a thing to amount and to amass into an account so that one day when we stand before Jesus, we're praying and hoping we have more grace than sin. And folks, the accounting doesn't work that way with Jesus. Our sin is all the way up here. It's, it's the worst it could possibly be. But grace abounds, not because you came to church, not because you read your Bible, not because you earned the grace, but because it is a free will offering from Jesus Christ himself, fully and complete. The more that you have sinned, the more his grace has covered you. The grace is an unending source. And it's in the person, Jesus Christ. It's not a commodity to earn and gain possession. And so he wants to know how he can take possession of eternal life, right? He has all of these other great possessions. It's brought him status amongst men in the world. And now if he can have all of that too, plus if he can gain eternal life and put it as another trophy on his shelf that he has garnered. And Jesus gives us a clue at the very beginning when he says, well, why do you call me good teacher? Why do you call me good? For no one is good except for God alone. Jesus is, is, is foreshadowing a bit. And, and if we pay attention, he's teaching something to us because next comes the gentleman's resume. And Jesus is like, well, you know the commandments. And he lists them off and he goes, yes, I've kept all of those my entire life. So his resume, he looks perfect. He looks good, moral. He, he's a good, upstanding citizen. He has amassed wealth. He's kept all the commandments. He's very religious. And yet Jesus tells them that his resume isn't enough to get him eternal life. And he clued us in. None is good. No one. If you've read scripture in Romans chapter 3, Paul echoes this understanding taught by Jesus that no one is good. No one is without sin. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that no one seeks after him. And it's very tough for us to take. Because there's something that happens within us that prevents us from at times sharing our faith with others we think, oh, well, but they're a good person. Maybe they don't need to know about the gospel. Because in ourselves, we keep trying to think, well, if I'm more of a good person than I am of a bad person, again, we're playing the bank account game of grace. And that just isn't the case. His resume wasn't good enough. Why wasn't it good enough? Because the simple fact is we can do all the good and all the moral and all of the religious things in this world. Yet if we do not have full trust in God for everything, everything in this life and for the life to come, then the truth is we are only superficially interested in God. This young man has a superficial interest in God. And this happens when we aren't honestly seeking him, in that we have conditions upon which we will follow him, and only if those conditions are met. As long as it doesn't cost us 
too much. We read a story like this, and we want to hear from the preacher today, Jesus doesn't really require me to get rid of everything, does he? We all want to be comforted to think that maybe we can hold on to our backup plan if this Jesus thing doesn't work out. We want to hear that message today because that would be comforting. That would tickle our ears. That would make us feel good and wouldn't really challenge us to, to change our lives and look to Christ for everything. But it's not what happens in the scripture. It's not a word I can give you today. But this is what Jesus calls that young man. He said, We can improvise. He looks at this young man, perfect resume, and he says, but you lack one thing. Go sell everything, give all of the money to the poor, and come follow me. It really feels like three things, but he says it's one. For Jesus knows our hearts. He knows him. And he says, sell it all. Give it all away and follow me. That's it. That's all this young man has to do. That's his cost. And he couldn't do it. Bowing at the feet of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he couldn't do it. And we look at him, and we wonder about our own selves. If God came to us and asked us to get rid of everything and follow him, could we do it? We wonder these things, and we wonder with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who have been told that the Taliban knows where they are and that they're coming for them, would we have the courage to still meet like this in the face of such great persecution? And right now we can wonder those questions because neither one of those things have been directly asked of us. And we pray that we could. But we're unsure. We're unsure because we have this sinful nature in our hearts. That we have this fleshly desire, this, this war raging on within our hearts. That we have been given the spirit so we can put sin to death. And that war is with, at, with our pride. Our pride says, I can take care of myself. And the gospel says, you only need Christ. And so far often we say, yes, I will put almost everything in Christ. But in case it doesn't work, I will hold on to plan B. And so our entire lives following Jesus is a wrestle with trusting him holding on to plan B. It's hard to embrace Jesus when we won't let go of security in this world.
And the young man couldn't do it. He was disheartened. Went away sorrowful. Because he had great possessions. For you see, this young man, we're not told he's wealthy. From Matthew and and Luke, it's titled the rich young ruler. And here it's titled the rich young man. He has a problem letting go. And it's because of his pride. Because his identity is wrapped up in his wealth. If he is not a, a rich young man, then what is he? Just another guy? What is his identity then in the world and with his friends? He wanted eternal life. He went at the feet of Jesus asking what he must do only to find out it would cost him his pride and his possessions. And that, my friends, was just a cost too high. He loved the world, not heaven. He loved the material, not the spiritual. He loved to be known and honored among men and to be known and deeply loved by his Father in heaven. And here in this encounter, we see that Jesus didn't waste time giving this man a soft entry into salvation. He didn't say, well, all you have to do is repeat this prayer after me. All you have to do is make a decision right now for Jesus. No, Jesus went straight to his heart and to the sinful pride in him. And he says, what you have to do is let go of your pride and the willingness you have to take care of yourself and this identity you have in the world and place it all in him. That's what he had to do. So we wonder about our own sins. Do we fully trust in Christ and in the Father to to take care of us now in this world, not only in the world to come, or or are we placing our trust in, in gathered dollar bills in this world? So the man leaves. Disheartened and sorrowful, but continuing down his path of destruction. Because he has chosen his pride over the treasures of heaven. And we're not shocked at all by this. We see it every day in this world. There's a reason Jesus says you can't serve two masters. It's because it's true. And so after this man leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples and and wants to clarify this a little bit more. He says in verse 23, where we pick up, he says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And this just shocked the disciples. They were completely surprised that Jesus is now saying this. And they're thinking, no wealthy people in heaven? What? And so Jesus says it again, and then he adds to it in verse 25 when he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you've been in the church for any time, you've heard this before, and, and you've thought, man, this is a really wild idea Jesus has because we're thinking I have a sewing needle, right? So tiny, and a camel's so big. What a, what a ridiculous image that Jesus is putting in our heads, something that is, is uh, by all scientific accounts through physics impossible to ever occur one time. That's the image we have. But we have to understand the context of the time because then it, it helps us out better. So Jesus is talking the kingdom of God. And, and so they have an understanding then of kingdoms and kingdoms have gates and kingdoms have doors to get into those gates and to get into the kingdoms. And there was oftentimes a big door, one big enough for someone riding on horses or camels to stay atop of them and ride through. But they took work. They took work to open and to close and were harder to keep secure. And so within that giant door, they also created what they called the eye of a needle, which was a little five-foot entry so that people could come and go and it was easier to keep security around the kingdom. That's the eye of the needle. And so for a camel to get through the eye of a needle the camel would need to go down on its knees, bow its head, and then would still have to be led through the gate. The camel will not do that on their own. And Jesus says it's more likely for that to happen than a wealthy person to get into heaven and he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And so he comes here and he says, it, it is near impossible for a wealthy person to get into heaven. And here's why. But he says, that's impossible for man to do. Because man has an idea and a pride about themselves and a, and a wanting to have status and power and, and a name and honor amongst men in this world. And he says it's impossible for that man to give it up all on his own. He's telling us this, that the salvation is nothing we can do on our own. We cannot do it, but it is not impossible with God. This is the good news. That our pride, that our sin, that our wealth, that our ego, that our sinful nature, our fleshly desires, while we can't overcome them, because that's what Jesus says, we can't overcome them on our own. It is not impossible for God. God can overcome the sinful nature and our prideful desires. He can pierce our hearts. He can turn us from evil and turn us to facing him. He has a plan. On our own, we cannot earn eternal life. On our own, we cannot buy or possess eternal life. It requires God. It requires Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. It requires God to change hearts. It requires him to lead us to being humble and bowing our heads 
And then, as Hebrews tells us, we have a great high priest, a good and great shepherd who grabs the reins of our lives and leads us through that gate. He will not leave us on our own saying, here's the way to do it. Now figure it out. No, he comes and grabs us and takes us through for the gate is narrow and few find it. And, but with God, but with God, all things are possible. With God, we can find the gate. With God, he will lead us through the gate. With God, we can lead our prideful and sinful desires and turn and face him and trust him completely for everything. And with him and seeing his glory, thinking we can hold on to plan B when we're really looking at Jesus, just let it go. Because when we see him, in all of his glory. There is nothing in the world that you wouldn't spend to give it. This is the great news in Christ. That our own pride our heart, our sin, that it's impossible for us to overcome, says Jesus. But with God, but with God, nothing is impossible, even rescuing a prideful sinner. Amen.